Let's turn together, please, to Revelation 19. Those of you who have been followers of Jesus now for a long time may wonder why in the world we would, on a day like today, go to Revelation 19, both because we are considering to some degree the past, but also very much what's going on in the present. But it is going to be my task to try to explain to you why that is. Revelation was written to real people who made up real churches in the first century. John, Jesus' beloved disciple, was given the vision of things present in his day and age and things to come, some things that have come to pass and a lot that has not yet come to pass. Revelation is one of those books of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, which has confounded and confused theologians for centuries. There are some well-known preachers in days gone by that just wouldn't touch it. It can be confusing. The language, the imagery, the metaphors, they, they seem to slip through our hands often as we seek to interpret them. But because John wrote to real people and real churches, he had a message for them. And it was more than just to fascinate them about what might come at the end of days. There has been no shortage of books written, movies produced, which have sought to give us a picture of the future. They are apocalyptic in nature. They are surprising and confounding and often full of darkness with little glimmers of hope. Truly, this book, this book of Revelation, is what we would call apocalyptic literature. It is a unique genre of literature, and we are wise to interpret it accordingly. But this apocalyptic book, which we have in front of us today, had a message for its original audience, and it has a message for us as well. Far too often, the blessing that Revelation was intended to be is missed because we tend to speculate about all of its somewhat confusing details. And if you have been studying Revelation for some period of time, let me just tell you today that I'm not going to clear up all the confusion. But I think if we have eyes to see, we may actually capture its true message today. That is my hope. For John wrote to encourage real people with real struggles. And the message that he gave them was more than just a call to fascination, to to pique their curiosity. And he wrote to them with a message that was greater than just hold on. At best, if we can move beyond just the fascination with the details of this somewhat confounding book, we sometimes get to the point where we think to ourselves, 
The message of Revelation is hold on. It is that in part, but it's far more. Today we, we celebrate in this ceremonial way the, the joining together of two churches into one. We have a new book sort of uh, emblazoned on it, branded on it is, is the name of our church, Berlin Church, and it says underneath that, established 2019. Now, I recognize that Berlin Presbyterian Church was established in 1829 with, if you're doing the math, is 190 years, right? We are, we are nearing the 200-year anniversary of, of Berlin Presbyterian Church. Uh, North Point is a toddler in comparison. We were founded in 2006. We had a book like this. It wasn't nearly this nice. We've, we've upped the ante a little bit here for our new church. But this new beginning for us is beginning this year in 2019. And so after the service, after our worship gathering, we'll have a lectern or maybe we'll even use this stand right here and we'll have the book down there available for those of you who would like to sign today as charter members. So that's all of those who were members formerly of Berlin Presbyterian or of North Point or have recently gone through our membership class and have sat down with an elder. But, but this book is, is a symbol. It's a symbol of what God has done among us. But it's more than just two groups of people coming together ceremonially. This book represents for us the covenant that God made with us and that we make together today. And the reason John wrote the book of Revelation and all of its somewhat confusing parts, was to remind struggling people with real problems and real fears and real persecution and real sort of curiosity about what the future held, that the God who had made a covenant with them would bring it to completion. That the God who had restored sinful people to Himself by sheer grace, nothing that they had earned, nothing that they had merited by their behavior, that He had brought them back into covenant with Himself, and despite the unknown, despite the fearful things that often petrified them, that they could have total, rock-solid confidence that Jesus would keep all of His promises to them, that He would not let His covenant promises fail. And so, we are joining together today ceremonially to demonstrate that our confidence is in a covenant-keeping God who always keeps His promises. And in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10, we will not only find hope that John intended for first century struggling Christians and us today, but I think also we catch a vision for what he is calling us to. He promises us that he will love us. He assures us as his covenant-keeping grace, but he calls us to be unified together and to take this gracious message to the world. For the first six months or so of our merger, for Berlin Presbyterian voted in March to officially leave the EPC and to pursue this merger and to come together as one new church. For the past six months or so, 
we have been, as elders, taking time to, to test the waters, to check the barometric pressure, so to speak, of the atmosphere. How are we doing internally? It has been an amazing thing to watch the way that you as the people of these two former churches have come together and pursued unity, the way that you have laid down rights, the way that you have laid down preferences. You have demonstrated again and again the selflessness to come together into one new body, and we're so thankful for that. So the internal health of our, of our church is strong, and we're grateful for that. So the first six months or so have been this, this sort of inward gaze, but now today it is time for us to now take the strength and unity of our new church family, this unified body, and begin to think what it is we are here for. So we who have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus, brought into covenant unity with God, we are called to take this same message of grace to the world all around us. So our eyes have been, have been gazing a bit inward in recent months, and, and though we can't stop doing that, we must be careful to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as we learned recently about in Ephesians 4. We are to have eyes to see beyond that to what God is doing and seeks to do through us here in this community. So Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10, I encourage you to read along silently while I read out loud. This is God's Word. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Why, as John is given this vision, is he given a vision of a marriage feast? Well, I think in so many ways, this is the story of the Bible. If you have eyes to see again and again, you see hints and stories about weddings, about marriages. This shows up in the second chapter of the Bible. In the first chapter, God makes all things, including humans, the crowning achievement of His creation, and then He he marries them together. In Genesis chapter 2, Moses poetically says, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The first poem ever spoken by a human was a man to his wife. He could not but respond with love and amazement at the wonder at what God had done. Then truly throughout the rest of the Scriptures, we see this theme played out. I've mentioned to you Genesis chapter 2. There's a slide behind me that'll put a few passages in front of you for some further consideration, but let me just run through them very briefly. Genesis chapter 2, God marries together the first two humans. In chapter 3, if you know the story, humanity willingly falls into sin, and not only is their relationship with Him broken vertically, their relationship with one another horizontally will be significantly damaged. So every time you fight with your spouse, every time you don't understand them, you can blame Adam and Eve. We come on to the poetic section of the Old Testament, Song of Solomon, which is a book all about marital romantic love. But even still, it points us to something greater. And this is picked up in a passage like Ezekiel chapter 16, a very interesting passage where God says that He found an abandoned child left to the elements to die. And He took this child, and He cleaned her up, and He turned her into a princess. And in a very holy way, the metaphor gets tweaked a bit, and when this princess become of age for marriage, He marries her and makes her His own. This is a picture of how God had chosen Israel to be His bride. But then Ezekiel 16 tragically goes on to say that humanity, and specifically Israel, had abandoned her covenant with God, and God punished her for this. But the hope at the end of the chapter in Ezekiel chapter 16 is that God promises to restore Israel and make her a worthy bride. And then in the prophecy of Hosea, it's all about this very thing, that God had chosen Israel to be His bride, but she had played the harlot. And then God calls this real prophet who had a wife who really did cheat on him to go after her and to buy her back from the slave market and to show her the grace of forgiveness. And through this real man and his real broken marriage, restored by selfless grace, God preaches to Israel through the mouth of the prophet and his life that he will show covenant loyalty to his people even when they are unfaithful. In Matthew chapter 22, the Lord Jesus talks about a wedding feast that people from all nations and tribes and tongues and languages are called together to this wedding feast of reconciled relationship with their Creator. Interestingly, in Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees, this group that opposed Jesus, asks Jesus about the coming age and what it will look like for marriages. And I'm doing this in a very short way. I'm not giving you all the details. But it's interesting because there in Matthew 22, Jesus says, after He's talked prior to to this section about a wedding feast that people are called to. He says that in the future state, people who are married here, husbands and wives, will not be married. 
That's one of those passages of the Scripture that I struggle with. I love my wife, she's my best friend, and I cannot imagine not being married to her. But we know that what's coming is better than what we have. And in Ephesians 5, Paul lets us in behind the curtain a little bit. In Ephesians chapter 5, he tells us, and we'll look at the verse in just a moment, that the mystery of marriage points to something greater. In fact, the reason that God gave us marriage was for more than just procreation, having more kids, more than just marital joy, that God intended through this most intimate of relationships to teach us something. And we put this together with the passages that we've already considered briefly. We know that what God has done in giving us this relationship is to teach us in the good days and in the bad, for in the good days we, we have this, this insight, this, this peering beyond what we can see into what real reconciled relationships can look like. And, and even on the bad days or on the worst of seasons when marital relationships perhaps are broken, it, it demonstrates the agony of, of abandonment and, and brokenness. But what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 is that there is an eternal relationship that can never be severed, which will never dissatisfy us, will always deliver on its promises. And that brings us to our passage in Revelation chapter 19 that we're going to consider today. So, as you can see from beginning to end, not just Genesis and Revelation, the bookends of the Bible, but everything in between, we find a story about love, about weddings, about marriage, about God taking relationships that were broken and surprisingly fixing them, and in those relationships teaching us about His love for us, despite the fact that we didn't deserve it, despite the fact that we ran away from it again and again and again, that He has pursued us and done this through His Son, the Lord Jesus. And this was prophesied in the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 25. Where the prophet says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And when Isaiah wrote this in the 8th century, Israel was anything but a faithful bride. But she longed for restoration. And God promised it. And that is why Paul can say in Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Picking up the language in Genesis 2, and then this very important passage of Scripture, this mystery, Paul says, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So guess what your marriage is about? It's about teaching you that a God who didn't need us, that we offended again and again and again, 
did not withhold His Son from us to come and purchase back His bride and make her holy. And that's what this merger is about. We have likened it to the metaphor of marriage, God bringing two different parties together. But the reason we can use that metaphor is it's such a biblical metaphor for now what are we as a combined church? We are a church of people who are yet broken. We have been justified by the grace of God, declared righteous through the sacrifice of Jesus, and yet we are the ones who have been paid for. We are the ones who have been bought. We are the ones who needed atonement. And now together as one church, we rejoice in the reconciling gospel of Jesus Christ. But more than this, we have a message to give. For now we are agents of reconciliation. We are objects of reconciliation. And now we are to be agents of reconciliation. And I believe that Revelation chapter 19 gives us this vision of objects of reconciliation, reconciled to a groom, a husband that we didn't deserve, but also called to be agents of reconciliation to take this good news of a gracious bridegroom who reconciles to himself a bride that didn't deserve it to the world around us. Let me give you three brief reflections on this text so that we can understand how it applies to us. According to verse 6 in Revelation 19, which I read just a moment ago, we need not be afraid. Jesus will vanquish all evil. In Revelation chapters 17 and 18, John prophetically tells us that the great harlot Babylon is cast down, that God through His Son has conquered all evil. And because of this, we don't have to be afraid. And I say to you, my friends, you don't just have to wait till Jesus comes back to stop being afraid. Most of us are scared most of the time. A lot of you are probably already scared about next November. Not the one coming, the one that's even further out than that. Many of you are scared about the eclipse of the influence of the Christian church here in our country. Many of you are scared about the the fabric of your relationships, maybe your actual marriage, or the relationships you have or, or lack with your children. Many of you are scared about diagnoses that you are awaiting. Many of you are scared about the solvency of the company for which you work. Some of you are scared of your own hearts because you know how much darkness still resides within. But Jesus has begun and will one day complete His vanquishing of all evil. So you don't have to be concerned about the political instability of this country. Sometimes you hear people say it has never been worse than this. Ask John in the first century who was on a prison island whose friends had all been martyred for their faith, who lived under the dominion of an emperor named Domitian, 
Domitian was the Roman emperor that John wrote under during this time. Domitian had proclaimed himself our Lord and God. That is how he was to be referred to by everyone in his empire. Christianity was under the thumb of the empire. John lived in an awful, awful time. It has been just as bad, and frankly, it has been worse than we have it right now. But what if we approach a day, our children do, our grandchildren do, where things get even worse? This is why Jesus gave the vision to John, who wrote to real people and real churches, and He said to them, you don't have to be afraid. Jesus, who made all things, and who right now is sustaining all things, Every breath you take, every breath your child takes, every dollar in your paycheck, who is superintending, even if we don't like it, all the political maneuverings of our country and the globe, and always has and always will, you don't have to be afraid. Jesus will vanquish all evil. The Gammons, the family that is together right now, they don't have to be afraid. I just got a text from Tom, and she has passed into eternity. Mary's not afraid anymore. Tom doesn't have to be afraid. Their daughters don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. For even the final thing that we are most scared of, death itself, Jesus has overcome that. And that is why in Revelation chapter 21, if you want to turn there with me very briefly, John writes in verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus knows all the circumstances of your life. He knows every tear you have cried and potentially will. You don't have to be afraid. The second thing that this text teaches us is that we may expect satisfaction. Jesus will keep all of His promises. In verses 7 through 8 of Revelation chapter 19, we find a big party. We're going to have a party after this in that tent out in the back lot. It's appropriate for us to celebrate. There's coming an age where we will celebrate all of the time. I was talking to one of my sons recently, and he was saying that he loves going to the mountains. We like to vacation out in the Rocky Mountains. And he said to me as we were taking a hike, we had gone up to a couple of alpine lakes and we were on our way back down to our truck, he said, Dad, I just wish we lived out here and we could experience the mountains all the time. And I said to him, Buddy, if that were the case, it would be like having Christmas every day, 
and then Christmas wouldn't be so special. Well, that was the wrong thing to say to a 12-year-old. He said, if we could have Christmas every day, it would be amazing. That's why we love holidays, right? Not just because we get a day off work, but we love being together with people we love, giving presents, eating food. Do you realize there's coming an age where that's what we'll do? Now, I think we'll do more than that. And how literally we take this, I don't really know how to tell you. But I think there's at least some measure of of literalness to this, that that we'll sit down at a, a long wedding table It'll be as far as the eye can see. Or or maybe there'll be a a chief table somewhat elevated and then tables all around it. And we'll enjoy Jesus. We'll have full access to him. Now, how that's possible because he's a real human in a real body and yet is still omnipresent, I don't know how to explain that. But we'll, we'll get to fellowship with him. He will thrill us and satisfy us in ways that you can't imagine. Like Tom Gammon said to me last night, you you take the the best thing you can imagine and it's way beyond that. And that's what it'll be like to fellowship with Jesus. But we'll be there together too. I look forward to that. No more skepticism, no more doubts, no more pain, no more schism in relationships, no more divorce, no more people abandoning you, no more abuse. And do you realize that in the here and now, we have an opportunity to live that way? We're going to spend eternity together in perfect fellowship. So why fight now? Incredibly relevant for mergers, right? In a day and age like ours where there is so much separation, not just in government, not just in culture, but in our churches, Do you realize how uncommon this is, what God has done? It's a gift. And every single one of us has a role to play in maintaining it. This means that we can't sweat the small stuff. By God's grace, our leadership will make sure the main things always stay the main things here. But don't sweat the small stuff. Forgive quickly. Ask forgiveness quickly. Sacrifice for each other. Serve each other. I remember when my wife and I were dating and planning our wedding, a lot of thought went into it. I was finishing my last semester of undergrad. She had already finished and was home planning this. And when we came home, we went to our church building and we set up the, the reception and all that kind of stuff. And it was all about her, right? At that point, it's not about the groom. The groom just wants to get it done and move on. Uh, the, it's, it's a huge party that the bride wants to throw. So, you know, you, you give in to that because that's what you have to do. It's your first act of, you know, secret submission to your wife. Secret submission, right? For those of all, all those I just made mad, I believe the Bible, okay? But, but we give in sometimes, right? So that's like the first time you do. And, and it's just a big party for everybody else. But, but there's something important about that. It's a chance for for people to hang out with the bride and groom, but you don't get to hang out with the bride and groom much at a wedding reception. You you spend a lot of time together, and and that's what eternity is going to be like, except except better, because we'll have full access to the groom, we, the bride of Christ, reconciled by his blood, and we'll have unfettered, harmonious access to each other, where I don't worry about what you think of me. And you don't worry about what I think of you. 
because we'll have perfect harmony. I look forward to that. But our church has an opportunity to display that now. What's it going to be like for a community that, that we are beginning to invite into our building? Because the building's not the church, right? We're the church in the building. We're putting careful and thoughtful work into how we can make this a, a more welcoming environment for people in our community. We have, we have work to do there. You'll begin to see some of those things as we announce them and they come to pass. But we want to make this a welcoming environment for our community. But if they come in here and hear biblical sermons and hopefully doctrinally accurate songs, but we don't love each other and don't love them, they will not stay. So we have to be the kind of people that not only are in awe of God, but display the kind of relationships that are otherworldly. Relationships that are uncommon. The kind of relationships that draw people's attention to the fact that Jesus is making all things new. And notice that, that this bride is adorned in good works, that God Himself has granted. This reminds us of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that, that good works have been prepared beforehand, that we can walk in them. The promises of the new covenant, that we would have a new heart that could and would obey the law of God. God has enabled us to, to pursue good works, and we are to do that together. So through the harmony of our relationships and through the intentionality of our good works here and around the world, as we, as we give our money, as we give our time, as we give ourselves, we draw attention to the worthiness of Jesus. And so I say to you, there's coming a day when you will feast with Jesus together. And any other competing affection that you pursued will never have been worth it. Your job, as much as you like it, doesn't measure up. Your hobbies, as satisfying as they sometimes are, they're not your ultimate hope. Your spouse, your children, your money, your leisure, your vacations, these are gifts to be enjoyed. But Jesus, my friends, is your ultimate treasure. And one day we will gather together with him and he will satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. So why in the here and now would we find our greatest treasure in anything else? So enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your children and your leisure and your hobbies and your job and everything else he's given to you as a gift. But, but be careful. It's not your ultimate hope. There's coming a day when you will find your deepest longings satisfied, and it will be because you are in the presence of Jesus, or miraculously, we will be in the presence of Jesus together. And lastly today, we don't have to be afraid. Jesus will vanquish all evil. We may expect satisfaction. Jesus will keep all of his promises to us. And thirdly, lastly, we must live for something larger than ourselves. Jesus will use us to make his good news known. Notice in verse 9, this angel says to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So why will we be there? Why will we have an invitation that gets us into the feast? Not because of bloodline, not because of good works, at least not that we've conjured up, 
We will be there because Jesus died for us and called us to be his own. But don't you want others to be there with you? To experience the glory of this good news? We've been invited to this feast. And all of us who have trusted Jesus will be there. But there are others, thousands, millions here in this community and around the world who just don't know. They're confused. They're ignorant. They've never heard. They're confusing their own good works with the grace of Jesus. And they need to be invited with the true message of Jesus. Whose responsibility is that? That's ours. The internal health of our church is strong. But the purpose of this merger was not just to bring together two different groups of people as an experiment to see if it could work. The purpose of this merger was that we might do mission better together than apart. And our mission is to take the reconciling message of Jesus, because we are objects of reconciliation, to the world as agents of reconciliation. We are surrounded by people to the left and to the right and in front and before. In our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our families, people who are confusing their merits for the good news of Jesus. And what do they need to hear? They need to hear that they are invited freely by what Jesus has done. And that's our responsibility. And there is nothing that gives a church more joy than seeing people come to faith in Jesus and finding their greatest delight in Him. So, may we find our greatest delight in the one who gives us the message that there's no need to be afraid, who calls us to expect that one day we will be satisfied to the fullest in Him together. And this calls us to uncommon unity now, but He calls us to be on mission. We who have been invited to invite others, may God be pleased to do that in and through us. God has given our two churches now joined into one, a rich heritage. Funny story, I was sitting down looking at some of the old books from Berlin in days gone by. And in the 1950s and 60s, and maybe before and after that, there was a program here at Berlin, I guess to make a little bit of extra money, because they put money toward bean and corn seed. Did anybody know this? People I was sitting down with the other night as I was reading it didn't either. And then they grew it, and it multiplied, and they actually made some extra money for the church. That's called the preschool now, by the way. That, never mind. <laughs> There's, there's little anecdotes like that as you look back into the past. But mainly the heritage of Berlin is that they've been around for almost two centuries and sustained their hold on Jesus. That's, a, that's amazing. This church was planted in the Kilbourne area back in 1829, eventually moved to Cheshire and Africa Roads, which itself is a very historic area. And whenever the Army Corps of Engineers came in to build the dam and flood the valley there, the Presbytery wanted to shut the church down, but a few faithful people fought the Presbytery on that and moved out here to this property. And then look what God did. 
In the 1970s, the early 1970s, when this church building was built, Lewis Center didn't really exist. There was a tiny little village, but these thousands and thousands and thousands of houses with thousands more coming, that didn't exist. But God knew. And faithful people hung on. Faithful people kept teaching the Scriptures and making disciples. When North Point was planted in 2006, as the area really did begin to explode, we wanted to be the kind of church that would welcome the community in and, and, and teach people about the good news of Jesus and see disciples made. And who knew, except for God, that He would bring us together at this point in time that we might now, by God's grace, reach this community better. That's why we're here. So I'm super excited about our new family. I'm super excited about the unity that we, we see existing. I'm super, I'm super confident that by the grace of the Spirit, we will seek to maintain that. But I'm even more excited that we get to go on mission together as objects of reconciliation to take the message of reconciliation to our community. So let's celebrate together today all that God has done and looking forward to what He will do. I invite you to stand with me and pray. And after we pray, we'll sing one more song. And the book will be available for you, and we will then go out and eat. So I'll give you a couple more instructions about that in just a few moments. But please pray with me. Lord Jesus, now you who are making all things new, we are grateful for what you have done. We give you thanks. We are in awe of your goodness and your wisdom. And I pray that we would recognize the gift that you have given us in this unified church and that we would be eager to maintain it, looking forward to the day when we will fellowship together in perfect harmony. May we live optimistically without fear. May our confidence be in you and you alone. And as we rest in the good news that you have given us through your death and resurrection, may we be people who are courageous and loving enough to take it into a community that desperately needs it. So may we be like a city set on a hill. As we read earlier from Ephesians 3, we ask you now to do more than we can ask or think for your glory and for our joy and the good of many. So do all those things in our minds and hearts which we need. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.